0: Welcome back, folks. Hey, this is Dr. Scott. I'm here with my partner in crime.
1: Hey, it's Dr. Shiloh. How is everyone? I act like we're doing something live. Like, hey, let's get hey. vocal. Check <laughs> in. Just kidding. Check in. <laughs> oh, we're excited to be back. We are over our 50 episode hump. Let's go to 50 more.
0: Yeah, definitely of our long form we we were we were just saying before we started before I pushed the record button we were talking about our previous debate in an episode about shorter episodes. And we got all of this feedback saying, no, don't cut it up. We love the long episodes. So I guess that's our thing is long, long ass episodes.
1: Gluttons for punishment. Yeah, we we love you guys. Psychologists.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for being so patient with us. So we've got a really cool episode today that started out as something Something How so innocuous. You How'd you
1: pick it's this?
0: Because the guy that I'm going to give as one of the examples just died, okay. and because it happened to do with my home state, um, you know, that kind of it stuck with me because I remembered the story and I thought I need to do a deeper dive into this. And then my friends that are in various branches of federal government were like, "Oh yeah, I had to go check on that case as well. I was involved," and they gave me like a little bit of data as well. So we'll get to that. But let's take it away. Today's episode is on the violence of fandom and the dangerous culture of sports fandom, specifically sports fanatics, you know, and there's, we'll get into it in a little bit. But there's actually even a psychological testing scale that is used to monitor how where you are on the scale as like a minimal observer versus someone who's like a pathological fanatic. I Who even knew there was this? So
1: where would you be on this scale?
0: I would be probably vacillating between one and negative one. Because I look, I'm surprised like every once in a while, like if if there was a sport that I was going to get into, it would probably be hockey. I think hockey is so dynamic and fascinating. And when you especially when it's live, and you're on top of it, watching on on top. I think it's just so cool. But you know, I'm I'm from Alabama, and I should be a football fan. And it was just never really like a big thing in our immediate family. It was big in our extended family, but not in our immediate family.
1: Yeah, I was a little um, confused when you first posed this as a topic. I was like, okay, I know this isn't like some natural. Um, interest in the sense of like the sports world. And I thought, okay, he's got to be talking about like people that stalk and kill sports stars. <laughs> like, like my mind was not around the fan. Oh, like the movie,
0: the movie swim all. fan. There was a movie swim fan. I totally looked with, that up yeah.
1: and I looked up the fan with um, what, I think it's with Wesley Snipes.
0: Oh yeah. That's and a good one.
1: Is I that with Robert
0: get, De Niro? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: I took it out of our outline all quick. I'm like, oh, that's not what he's talking about today. So <laughs> I had to scratch that. But, this but is a we, really could probably,
0: cool we could probably, we could that could be related like a follow-up to our stalker episode about um, people who specifically stalk sports figures.
1: Right. So but, I, I grew up a sports fan. Okay. i um, here from Los Angeles. By the time I was, I think we say like around five, six-ish, um, I had the all of the Dodgers baseball team at that time memorized every every player their position and their number oh my god um on their jerseys from spending every other weekend with my dad who is a diehard Dodgers fan um and When I was in the fifth grade, when I was 10, you know, you usually have to do like some current event report every week, just because teachers want you reading newspapers. And that was uh, 1988. And I did my current event that week on Kirk Gibson pulling his hamstring and how awful it was because it was right before the World Series. So like, that's the kid that I was.
0: (laughs) That's amazing to me.
1: Yeah. I mean, I just,
0: I don't, I never, I never got it. And I mean, to the extent, like I even had a brief stint while I was in college as a professional cheerleader for the USFL when the USFL started up and had a team in Birmingham, Alabama, the Birmingham stallions. Um, I was one of the cheerleaders. It was not a good experience i mean
1: what's usfl uh
0: united states football league oh it died it died pretty quick like yeah, it was I the tampa remember. tampa bay buccaneers um birmingham stallions it was like a really like much much smaller cities you know that, that had just enough money to get some kind of you know sports team but right yeah it was not good
1: no. ah, oh. do you have a pictures video that time?
0: I'm sure somebody does. I'm sure one Charities? of the Phillies, the cheerleaders were called the Phillies, which me and Ew. Barry and Eric were not happy that we were called Phillies. Oh, and we showed up. <gasps> we showed up like at one of the games and they were giving us our jackets and our sweatshirts that were all matched up. The colors were red and gold. And I was like, what the fuck? Our names are on the back. And it was, it was hell. It was absolute hell because every drunk redneck was like, uh, Hey, Scott,
1: Scott,
0: come here, let me see your moves. And those oh. were the nice things that were said, but I'm yeah. not, I'm, not I'm, sure. I'm not scarred. I'm not scarred. I'm fine.
1: I was almost a cheerleader for, so there was a time when our country had a professional roller hockey. And yeah. when I was at Cal state Fullerton doing my undergrad, um, I was in the process of trying out for the Anaheim Bullfrogs.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: The team there for the cheerleading squad and um, made it past several rounds. Dance, as you guys know from Scott and I bantering. I I danced for about 10 years as well. And they ended up disbanding roller hockey all across the, the board. So it was something that died. And I was like, this is a sign. I am done with my dance career. Time to focus on criminal justice or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome.
0: That's really awesome.
1: Um, I'm also a football fan. I, I love baseball. It's my number one go-to baseball is on in my household all the time in the evenings. Thank God it is finally back due to COVID it's been, um, delayed and it's weird because there's no fans in the stand, but then they have cardboard cutouts of fans and they have the sound effect of fans right now. Not quite the same, but, um, but I do like football too. And I'm a Denver Bronco fan because my father is originally from Colorado.
0: So So those are my two teams. When do you remember what's, what's the earliest you remember becoming a fan of the Broncos? When did that, at what age did that happen?
1: Um, sure it was ingrained pretty early as well the football season is much shorter than the baseball season so it, it didn't seem like it was as much of a staple and it's not happening every night it's only sunday games right so um i think around 10 the broncos were uh, they were doing very well you know the john elway days and i remember super bowl parties and dressed head to toe and broncos gear 10, 11, 12 years old, kind of that golden era of the Denver Broncos.
0: Okay. Yeah. So that's right at a sort of a critical age where you start to, as we will use this term several times through our program today, you start to identify with that particular team.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So what's a fan?
1: So just going by a pure definition from the dictionary, a fan or it's short for fanatic. They are not really two different things, Um, but it's a person with an extreme and uncritical enthusiasm or zeal or fervor for the sport or whatever it is. Um, And I think that's Kind of putting it mildly, I guess. Like you said, there's a spectrum to it. Right. Um, but you also talked about identity, and I know that the second I find out someone else is a Broncos fan, especially because it's not an LA team, it's like we have this instant bond. Or if I figure out that you're a Raiders fan, I'm like, ugh.
0: <laughs> yeah, what is that about? Like I, like I remember, you know, Dan played football in high school and. Like that was one of the things I didn't understand. After, even after I'd been here a decade, it was like, "What's what's up with the Raiders? Like, why why is that such a thing?" And he just he, his his understanding was it was that was supposed to be sort of like the bad boys. They're sort of like seen as outlaws, and that's why sort of a lot of people identify with them.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Raiders and the Broncos have just had a divisional rivalry for a long time, um, but so much so. Like I have one of my, uh, my debit card has the Broncos logo on it. And I mean, I think one time I went to, I met you at downtown Disney. We were going to just have lunch or something Then we ended up going into the park. And you know how, when you used to park at downtown Disney, you could park there for like three hours free or something. But then beyond that, you had to pay. Well, you and I ended up staying much longer than I thought we had to, and, or we were going to. And I remember leaving and I just handed the the attendant my card. I'm like, I know, like it's gonna be something ungodly. Don't tell me what the price is. Just charge me. And he looks at my card and he goes, Oh, a Broncos fan? Okay, that'll be ten bucks. Like he he was a fan also.
0: Oh, I forgot that.
1: I've also had people go, Oh, I'm sorry, we can't take your card here. Like joking around. Yeah, but like. Their LA had the Raiders and the Rams as their team for a really long time. So it's it's interesting. I, I talked to somebody today that has worked kind of in the security area of sports arenas in Southern California. And he said in the prime, like during the 80s, it um when the Raiders played that there were lots of gang members, like he said, thousands of gang members would attend these games and they would arrest like hundreds of people. Like people Mm -hmm. don't usually get arrested, but people during a season, like hundreds of people would actually be going to jail, not just ejected or banned, but crimes and violence. And um, once the Raiders left and went up to Oakland, those fans that had kind of built this identity or culture around it didn't have a team because the, the Rams were kind of like the squeaky clean Orange County team. They played down where the A's play. And so they all became Dodger fans. And then it was, it was dicey at Dodger Stadium for a long time because you had that, have that sort of leap over. And it's much cheaper to attend a, a baseball game.
0: That's fascinating because there was in the research we were doing was also in the phenomenon of rugby and soccer, which is football in Europe. You know, in in the UK, um, there was at that time, too, in the 80s was a big sort of the movement of the hooligans, where it was local and sort of geographical areas of gang members that would purposely go there in order to have their turf fights at the game. Mm -hmm. and one of the ways that they stopped it was that they stopped serving alcohol, which had a huge impact, but then also alcohol is the main driver for how they make money. So, you know, the ticket prices go up, and then families can't afford to go, so it's this kind of vicious cycle, but it all kind of ties around to a couple of psychological profile issues that we're going to talk about today, but, you know, basically what you're talking about is community and identity. I mean, that's really what brings all of these people together. You know, you, oh, and I do have to say the Broncos have a really great insignia. I think it's a really well designed, there's nothing more, I, I think there's nothing more badass than a really great
1: logo. Yeah, I agree. It's when amazing. done right, it's it's pretty cool. But yeah, I think you know this idea of culture really struck me as we were researching this and I I have done two days of putting on focus groups and training at work and we've had a a presenter from uh, Pepperdine University there and he's an expert in culture and so I've been listening to him sort of speak on some of these things and he says you know the things that culture has in common is that it builds a community there are things like symbols there is tradition and ritual and a language of its own as well as like stories and knowledge and you know, com- communal things like food and drink. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is describing a sports event yeah. or how we treat it here or in, in other parts of the country as well. Um, and especially the piece about knowledge and stories kind of took me back to, I had taken my dad, I think for his 60th, we went back to Cooperstown, New York, to go to the baseball hall of fame. And it was such an incredible experience. And The the stories that people have and the people that worked there, just the amount of knowledge that they had, you know, I was like, I wonder why the Oakland A's have like this white elephant on their uniform. And I found some, you know, guy that just worked there and asked him, and half an hour later, he was still telling me the story of how that had happened. But it's you know, you have these stories and this knowledge of statistics and history and those big games, and that's all part of culture.
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely fascinating. Um, And, you know, certainly it, it contributes to sort of enhancing an individual's identity. Their personal identity is certainly tied to the concentric circles of culture of various levels, whether it's your insular family culture, your work culture, your socialization culture, you know, you're talking about those things and how they tie together and then reinforce each other, and but not always necessarily in the most positive way, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, I want to start with an L.A. story, and when I say L.A., I mean, lower Alabama. (laughs) Uh, Because something really bizarre, and this is not a particularly like it didn't end in the the loss of a human life. But it's a particularly weird story. And it's why I came up with the idea for this episode. And, you know, wanted to run it by you is, you know, having grown up in the South, even though I was not like, I can't tell you anything about how I mean, I, I've been to games. I don't know how it works. I, you know, I, I just don't, I don't know the scoring. I don't know any of it, um, which is kind of probably some sort of internal protest on my part over generations or something. But what I do understand is really how important football is to Southern culture, and especially in Alabama, having two state schools that are really sort of epic, legendary rivals. Uh, Auburn and Alabama have been rivals for decades, and it's it's epic in scope and scale. The University of Alabama's mascot is a uh, a crimson uh, the Crimson Tide, which is a, you know manifested as a an elephant. You know, this super powerful, unstoppable force versus Auburn's War Eagle. You know, these iconic symbols really stick with you. I mean, even the few games I went to, I was really impressed by, this, you know, sort of the visual spectacle. But anyway, the story is, what what inspired this was at the beginning of this month, we're, you know, mid of, middle of the way through August 2020 right now, and at the beginning of the month was an announcement in the newspapers of the death of a 71-year-old man by the name of Harvey Updike. Now, Harvey Uptake is really sort of a recent addition to legendary sports-related crime in the state of Alabama because he hated Auburn University so much as an Alabama fan. And by the way, didn't even live in Alabama, Lives in, uh, lived his entire life and passed away at the beginning of the month in Louisiana, um, but despised the University of Auburn so badly that he made a plan, uh, you know, predation behavior, a very well thought out plan and poisoned these gorgeous oak trees that have been meeting places for significant events for Auburn University students. And the trees were like 80 years old, just these gorgeous old growth oaks. And this little jackass decided that he would get back at them by going and poisoning the trees. So he, in 2013, uh, he had already kind of told on himself that he pled guilty to the poisoning of the most famous old growth oak trees on the university campus. The location of the trees is known as tumor's corner. And really, like I said earlier, it was a center of celebration after big victories. Now, the interesting thing about Updike is he was a retired Texas state trooper. So somebody that you think would know better and have a better respect for the law. You know, no disrespect to his family. And as we say in the South about somebody who's reprehensible, well, bless his heart. He named his son Bear after Bear Bryant and his daughter Allie after Alabama. Oh, Um, wow. Yeah.
1: And who's Bear Bryant?
0: Bear Bryant was the most legendary, like godlike, cult-like status coach for the University okay. of Alabama, and he was really well known for a signature um, hounds, black and white hounds tooth hat he wore.
1: Okay, gotcha. Yeah,
0: which our friend Deb Height has prominently displayed on her altar to Alabama during football season. Which well, is that's another what big thing. Is. Yeah, that's another big thing in the South. Is you always set up a display that represents the team that you that you you admire. Yeah. Your
1: symbols, your rituals.
0: I know it's, it's that weird Gothic South stuff. I love it. (laughs) So, um, Updike told CBS news that he had planned and devised, um, his scheme for the crime for about a month. And he went researching to find the most powerful specialty herbicide he could find. He found one that's called spike ADDF. Um, off, off the top of your head, Shiloh, Doctor Shiloh, how yes. many? How how? Like, if we were going to think of this in terms of a, a dosages of poison, how many times the regular dose did he put on that grove of trees?
1: Well, I'm thinking, what can he actually get his hands on? So maybe like three times what you're yeah. supposed to do, okay.
0: because you're a rational person. That's what you would think. Mister Updike placed. 500 times the required dose of that specialty oversight on the trees. He oh used God. 500 times the amount needed to kill the trees. It resulted. Now, some people like at this point, you could go, come on, it's freaking trees. I mean, yeah, but nobody was hurt. Well, the problem here is that his use of 500 times the amount needed to kill a tree Soaked far and wide into the groundwater and the soil. So it poisoned several other trees, and they had to dig down. They're still actually still working a decade later on repairing it by digging out 8 feet of ground all around the roots of the trees they've tried they've killed several other trees as well and they've had to replace them but the you know auburn auburn even though i'm from north alabama i'm supposed to be a, a alabama fan auburn is a really famously well known school for agriculture so these trees were really beloved to them but they also had all these experts in botany there that were like holy shit, we're in trouble. This is going to ruin, you know, this could get into the groundwater. This could soak in, you know, this could affect students. So it went very quickly from, you know, this crazy guy who was basically, and we found out that part of his motivation is that he was just incensed that that a Bear Bryant statue was quote unquote vandalized in his opinion. Now the vandalism of the Bear Bryant, Bryant statue was that, somebody had taped an Alabama jersey to the statue. And he was so incensed by that. He's like, I'm going to go kill a tree. That's it was, not
1: a vandalism. It's not permanent damage. It's
0: not. It's not permanent damage. Elevated really quick from just some crazy guy wanting to get something, you know, going to need some revenge to basically the feds were brought in. And it was like, they were looking at like, this is potential terrorism. Wow. Yeah. He was sentenced to serve a minimum of six months of a three-year sentence for the criminal, for I think the charge is criminal damage to an agricultural facility. Like I said earlier, that's what Auburn is known for. And the sentence included a strict rule of five years of supervised probation and a ban on attending any collegiate event or, come, or even stepping on Auburn University property. So he basically had an enormous restraining order on behalf right. of the entire university.
1: Well, any co- collegiate event, meaning like, in the state? Cause could he not even go to Alabama games?
0: I, you know, I'm not sure. I like, I tried to, to dive down like the, the, the article that I pulled that from did not give any more information and I couldn't find, I, I think that that was just bad grammar on the writer's part. Mm-hmm. Sorry if I'm criticizing you folks, but I think it was probably any Auburn collegiate event. Cause how would I was they going to have...
1: say, yeah, that would get him where it hurts really if yeah. they banned him from all of that.
0: But if anybody out there knows, um, please let us know. I'd love to get, give us an email or text us or something. I'd love to find out. So, additionally, he was ordered to pay $800,000 in restitution. And um, how much of that do you think he paid?
1: I don't know. He was a former cop, so I'm guessing he wasn't a wealthy man. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Uh, uh, Fifty
0: thousand dollars. Close. He only paid sixty nine thousand dollars of the eight hundred thousand. I mean, that's that's almost. I don't. I don't think that that's an inappropriate amount given the damage and the you know the the emotional damage. I mean, everything that it encompasses. But it's also unrealistic to think that anybody, a man at his age, would ever be able to to pay that right. back. So what's really interesting, like when he was asked about his motivation, he just said he just doesn't like Auburn. Just doesn't like him. He called into, and he even started like some of our more serious criminals that you and I have discussed on this podcast, is that he started experiencing leakage. Like everybody knew something was wrong with the trees, but he wanted to take credit for it. So when nobody was getting any sort of leads, because there were security cameras all around, and he actually had scoped out when there would be less foot traffic and when he would be able to surreptitiously go in there and perform his act. But then he did it so well that, you know, he wasn't being caught. So he called into a radio show and admitted to it. And then when that they were not able to identify him through those means, he called um, the voicemail of an Auburn University professor. And he said, you know, and gave a, a false name and said that he knew who did it. So clearly oh, he he's was very
1: proud of himself. Oh, listening.
0: absolutely. Mo Roca, who people will know from a lot of, re, uh, a lot of uh, media over the past 15 to 20 years, he's done a lot of NPR and a lot of stuff for CBS News. He has his own podcast and he was able to interview Updike and really try and get more information on like, why did you do this? He said, I just don't like Auburn. And I wanted Auburn people to hate me as much as I hate them. And he also continued, you know, there are several things in this world that I really and truly don't like, and Auburn is one of them. Every night I'd stay up all night long. They used to have cameras on the trees, and I figured out when the slowest time was, what day of the week, and what day of the night I could go out and slow get around them oak trees so that I could go in there and not get caught. Sorry, I slipped. Really in the incredible.
1: No, thank you for that realistic spin on this. <laughs> no, that that's incredible. I mean, I wanting
0: why I mean, like i get, the wanting
1: to take credit and I want people to hate me as much as I hate that.
0: Isn't that telling? I mean, right there. I want like who, who gives a shit about you?
1: No kidding.
0: I mean, I think maybe that's underlying too of like, I don't even exist enough in somebody's lives to be recognized. So let me do something in order to create a name for myself. It's like the, you know, some of the lower intelligence killers out there that that's their motivation.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it especially with his age, you know, this, this was going to be his legacy. And it, it's, There are some narcissistic flares there, I think as well, but to let this be your legacy and like, yeah, so what (laughs) sort of mentality about it is pretty incredible.
0: Yeah. Those poor kids. I mean, I'm just going to give them, I'm going to try and give them credit of like just feeling badly for them, you know? Oh yes. Imagine like that's your family legacy. That's what your, your dad has done.
1: Oh yeah, and that that's not going to die for a long time. That's part of that uh, tradition and knowledge that's going to get passed down. The story of of crazy man Updike.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I really thought that we would just be engaging in a whole lot of conjecture about this, and apparently, no. There's actually some real research on two specific areas that are, um, you know, intrinsic to our discussion today. One is the psychology of fandom and then the psychology of violence among fans, which who, who even knew? That's one of the things we love about the field of psychology is that there are just so many different permutations and specific dives that go very deep into those areas. Um, so and they're specialists. Now interesting the the three psychologists that I'm going to be quoting from today all are uh housed very securely in Southern universities. So I think they oh, really they really really get it. Um so one is a sports psychologist and professor at the University of Texas, could be wrong, his name is Dr. Daniel Wan and he said that the number one uh aspect of a true fan fanatic is that there's a real strong need to belong. And, you know, his studies show that individuals who identify with a local sports team are usually socially and psychologically healthier. I mean, there's actually something that they are benefiting from. There's a stronger sense of well-being by identifying strongly with this this cultural aspect or this aspect of their culture.
1: So much of a social piece to that. I mean, I mean, right there and the need to belong, but you know, you are commiserating with people and, you know, celebrating and connecting with others when you are involved
0: Exactly, part
1: of this team.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What exactly what you're saying? It is so much more to that issue rather than just people watching a game that in that identification and that sense of belonging lowers the individual's sense of loneliness and alienation. There you go. Yeah. I mean, it's just, so now the next factor, which blew my mind because I really was not expecting this at all. Being a sports fan gives you a stronger acceptance of your own mortality. Did you see that coming?
1: Okay. Oh. Tell me more.
0: So acceptance of one's mortality um, is another huge factor. Fans of highly successful teams have an easier time of dealing with the idea of their own death. And this is linked to another fascinating rabbit hole I went down this week called the terror management theory. So... It it basically posits that when people become aware of their own mortality, we seek out important groups to bond with and identify with, and in this sense, that fandom is really very close to religion. Those experiences serve to justify our, our existence um, as we're coping with the vicissitudes of daily life, with anxiety, with depression, with challenges that come about the inevitability of death. You know, as you go through each stage of your life, as a young person, you have a different concept of death and mortality and basically as you sail through adulthood past the mid years into the silver and gold years or gold and silver years it's basically there's no denying that you have to have a sense of your own mortality and having that collective identity connection to something larger than yourself whether it's a religious belief or a team can help support that sense of well-being this I'm show is, like,
1: blowing my mind already. Like, I've said wow probably 25 times. I'm sorry. But this is so fascinating. And, you know, I wonder if this is linked to, like, huge disappointments people feel. And then you have to get over that. And then you have to, you know, we lost the big game. And it it is devastating to some people
0: well it is you know like I I have you know three of the detectives I work with who are just like the most hilarious guys and they are like almost like sitcom written sports fans like they start talking and it's like a completely different language and they're laughing about things like I I mean it would be like if I just started talking about you know Broadway shows. Uh, Broadway shows or, you know, Gelsey Kirkland's, you know, 20 years in the New York City Ballet, and you know, I'm sure they would look at me with like, what the fuck. But anyway, I love hearing them talk about it and I know that after games when they don't do so well, you know, they come slogging in and of course they're but then they commiserate or they kind of talk shit to each other and then they're better. Like it's it's sort of like there's this almost this processing of grief. Yes. And even though it's not the grief of about about of real life, whatever real life is, I think that that's something that maybe contributes to resiliency.
1: I think so, too. I think it's it's processing a loss um, and it is like I think it's more painful to lose the big game than it is exciting and joyous to win it. Does that make sense? Like, well, the, the yeah, negative emotion is. Yeah.
0: Well, that's part of his study also is that post game, the negative response to losing is way more potent than the positive response to winning. There you go. Which is, I mean, it's crazy that I, I would never even think to look like look for that. But then that's why I'm not like sort of a numbers researcher the way these guys are, which is great. And the reason I asked you earlier about like what age is that fandom really, this level of fandom starts very early and that most of the studies show that individuals who are linked to, the, to a team will nail, they'll drill down the time that they got connected to being usually between seven and eight years old.
1: Okay, so, and that
0: could be because of linking with a parent, you know, it's like a close bonding experience with the parent.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, it's, you know, for me, it w- it was a little before that time, also a little after, so right in around there. Um, but a lot of that was my relationship and my connection with my dad, who I did really only see every other weekend. And so like that being our thing. It was so great to have a thing yeah and we still have that i mean clearly like if i'm taking him to cooperstown for his 60th birthday and we text him and my brother and my husband about you know trades that are happening in the preseason, like that's that's just absolutely our thing
0: so. yeah it's a shared language it's 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 You know, it's not, I mean, I don't want to say that it's silly because it's not silly, but it's, it's sharing intimacy. You know, it's, it's, it's an, that's an intimate way of communication with maybe, I mean, your dad is like an amazing guy just across the board, but I can, I would think that for some families that maybe a parent doesn't necessarily have the greatest facility for emotional conduct, they can at least bond with their kids over those particular things. Right. So Dr Juan was asked in an interview like so why why do they do all this like you know what's what's the reason that people stay with teams that really suck and are wildly inconsistent in their ability so it's like you know if you were we can't necessarily draw this parallel between sports teams and gladiators because if the sport if gladiators did as bad as the sports team, gladiators would be dead every time right so He uses this analogy, if you order a pizza 10 times and then five times out of those 10 times, it's late or it's the wrong order or it's inedible, you would stop ordering. You would say, screw that. I'm not ordering from that place again. But fandom is not like that because the team becomes who you are.
1: Oh, that's the difference. Because I was going to say, yeah, it's terrible uh, reinforcement and shaping of behavior you would think that, you know, okay, if you're a a new England Patriots fan in the last two decades, great. You're going to stick with them, but people are diehard for the worst teams out there. And that is just not how we usually shape our behavior.
0: Well, and that's, that's definitely a point that he builds on. He says, that's the sort of the even deeper part of the mystery of this is that for You know, that spectrum along that scale that he tests for is, you know, on one end is the mild-moderate, but then far over to the right where someone is just really super-identified fanatic about the game, it really gets to a point of irrationality. And the quote he uses is, crying oneself to sleep over the failure of a group of people that you've never met is not rational.
1: Yeah, but... Some of us do it. <laughs> I know,
0: right? I mean, like...
1: I know. Right. And we're rational people, but... No,
0: I mean, like, and I've I've become upset when... I mean, I remember, like, when a really... You know, I'm at the... the I've, I'm of the generation where a lot of my favorite actors, and especially because I liked old movies, you know, I started seeing, like, stars that I really loved their performances when they died, I'm like, Oh no, that's so sad. You know, you're just like, Oh, I remember watching that variety show every Saturday night with my parents. And that was our thing and how funny that was. And, you know, so I, I can, get that part of it. I don't know if I would, I don't know if I cried myself to sleep, but there are some people who definitely would.
1: Yeah. You, you invest a lot. I mean, it's, it, it's the social piece. It's, it's financial. I mean, the, the amount of money that people pay out to buy season tickets, um all of the stuff that you can get there's a lot of commitment involved in it and people are all in i mean i'm my brother and i have this this bet that like the next time the dodgers win the world series we're getting Dodger tattoos at some point. And I am not for like tattooing myself with products or advertising anything, (laughs) but I'm like, I will do it. I will do it if they win the World Series and I will do it with you because we said we would. It's a pact. How cool. I will hide it probably somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I need to fill in part of the back of my leg. We'll see where if it happens when it happens. But all
0: right, it's folks, a lot you heard investment. it. Now okay. we're gonna have now we're gonna have all of our fans, all of our followers, our fans are gonna be like rooting and lighting candles for the Dodgers. To oh win. my so, god! That so Dr. Shyla will get her tattoo.
1: Do it! I'll do it live on Get Vocal. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, that would be hilarious. Can you imagine?
1: (laughs) Oh, man.
0: Well, okay. So we started off with a little bit of, I don't know if I would necessarily say the death of the trees and that vandalism and that criminal activity is light, but it certainly is lighter than where the rest of this story goes. So we've got a couple of examples that are specific and a couple a lot that are general that are examples of really some of the worst of human behavior as a result of these
1: factors that we'll get to. Yeah, it is it is absolutely the dark side of what we're talking about here and of course relating it to when humans become violent. And I knew when you broached me with this topic that I was going to be talking about the brian stowe case here right. in los angeles and this this was a really big deal and it was a very very high profile case here in los angeles the attention that it got the outcry the connection to the community and you know we as the angelinos and dodger fans were kind of the the bad guys in the situation it's just it's I don't want to say prolific, but just very high profile, very intense, very sad. So this took place in May 2011. It was opening day at Dodger Stadium, which is kind of like a city holiday here. It's just a really big deal. And the Dodgers were playing the Giants for opening day, which doesn't always happen. And the Dodgers and the Giants have been rivals since the 19th century when they were both New York teams and they were both in New York. Dodgers were out of Brooklyn. The Giants were out of Manhattan, I believe. And then eventually the Dodgers left to come to California and the Giants sort of followed behind and ended up going up to San Francisco and to kind of the next biggest city in the area and the rivalry continued out here and it's it's one of the biggest rivalries in baseball for sure and some say of all american sports it's just because it's so long standing and they both moved from New York to Los Angeles within a few years. So on this opening day, a 45-year-old paramedic named Brian Stowe and his three buddies came down from Santa Cruz. They were Giants fans. They were having just a guy's weekend. They um, stayed at like a little motel off Echo Park Boulevard and literally could walk to the stadium. And they just came down, decided to go to the game. They bought the bleacher seats, which was, you know, it's like 80 bucks and it's all you can eat and all you can drink. So they're the cheap seats, but then you sort of get this, all the alcohol you want sort of out there. It's a very rowdy part of Dodger Stadium.
0: I had no idea that, is that still a thing where you can have that
1: I don't think that's still a thing. Yeah. Wow. No, there's, there's definitely a limit and a, you know, probably more of like a package deal on it. And a lot of things changed at Dodger stadium as a result of this incident, but essentially, you know, they're in their giants gear. And uh, I, I spoke to, you know, a lot of people that know a lot about this case and they were saying even the security guards, when they were coming in, were like, oh, you guys better get ready. Like, you're going to get some shit because you're wearing giant stuff on opening day at Dodger Stadium. Just, like, stand by because it's it's coming your way. And they said that the entire game people were yelling at them, cussing at them, throwing peanuts at them. Like the entire game, they were just like being bombarded by Dodger fans who, and not just the good old, like, you know, heckling each other, like some nasty stuff, Yeah, but they stay throughout the game and they're, they're walking out, they leave the stadium. They're sort of, they're intoxicated, but they're going to the taxi line where the taxi line's at. And essentially, you know, tons of People are trying to leave this stadium and Dodgers stadium has the worst parking situation in the world, but the taxi driver tells them like, you're going to be spending a lot of money to just sit in this parking lot with me. Like you might as well sort of walk outside of the stadium and try and catch a cab out there or walk back to your hotel. And they were trying to do the responsible thing because they were intoxicated. So they were like, all right, we don't really know where we're at. Um, Let's just sort of follow the taillights out of this parking lot. They're walking out, um, like I said, there's four of them. They are walking through the parking lot and there is a couple of guys sitting at like the trunk of their car, sort of waiting for the traffic to die down. And it's two men, um... A woman who is the sister of one guy, and then she was engaged to the other guy. And these two men end up being our perpetrators. And then there is an eight-year-old child there too. He's—it's the son of one of the perpetrators. There, I, you know what? I didn't even look up who won this game. I cannot remember who who won and who lost this game. But as as Brian's group is kind of walking by, Brian says something to his buddies like it's just a game. It's not that big of a deal. It's not like it's a heart attack. And he used that verbiage. He was a paramedic. His buddies were paramedics. And one of the guys at his trunk, Dodger fans, kind of says something to him like, hey, what, what did you say? And, you know, he's like, oh, like... You know they know they're not in a place where they they know anyone, but he essentially just tries to play it down, says nothing, never mind and the the perpetrator runs over to him and like shoves him, so it's a shove, and then one of Brian's friends steps in between, puts his hand on the guy's chest and is like, "Hey, man, like we're just trying to get out of here and then the perpetrator slugs that guy, and that guy goes down. And so it sort of ends there. The guys go back to their car. And then at that point, they're like, you know, sort of showing off to the woman that's there. And she's like, yeah, look, they're still talking shit. And so they go and they start chasing after Brian and his group. And they chase them like hundreds of feet away before they finally catch up with them. And... Brian is sort of squaring off with one guy, his one of his buddies has been hit again by the other guy. And then before he can even, you know, figure out what's going on, the the second guy sort of circles around behind Brian and just sucker punches him right in the head from behind. And Brian is hits the ground, his head hits the pavement, and he's out cold. And then the the main suspect, Sanchez, who's the one who punched him, starts kicking him repeatedly in the head. And a woman, a, a a witness, actually goes over and tries, like, getting in between them. She's like, can't you see he's out cold? Stop. And that was actually the thing that got the guy to, to turn around. They go, they take off to their car, take off their jerseys, go, 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 let's get out of here sort of thing. Um, A witness was parked next to them, which becomes important later in the story. But Brian's friend basically sees blood coming out of his ears, out of his head, grabs his head, holds him, calls paramedics. And it's incredibly injurious to Brian. He does not die, but he spent months in a coma on artificial life support. He Mm. was... In a bed-bound state for so long that even after he came out of the coma, his muscles had deteriorated, he was very weak, and he was wheelchair-bound. And essentially, he he had to go through several surgeries, extensive, extensive rehabilitation, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, Um, but he had a lot of internal and um, brain damage he did eventually regain his ability to speak and read and write and eat and take care of his basic needs but these guys were gone in the wind they they were totally gone in the wind and um, it doesn't and
0: it, he, even though you're talking about how he was able to come back that does not in any way minimize the amount of damage and how his entire life has been impaired and impeded and challenged since that time. I mean, his life will will, never be the same.
1: Never, 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 never. And I I do want to talk about where he is now and what he's doing now, but... Absolutely. I mean, it was just devastating, absolutely devastating to this family, a good group of people. It's also interesting how much victim blaming was going on afterwards, and especially when his family filed a civil lawsuit against the Dodgers, that they were talking about, you know, what his blood alcohol level was and trying to say that he was a part of instigating this. It was just terrible. The family, I I can't imagine being sort of, you know, we talk about victims being re-victimized by the criminal justice system, and this was something that they did not deserve to have to go through. They eventually catch this guy or catch these guys because you know this is really like i said very high profile um they had billboards everywhere with the composite sketch which apparently was a nightmare because then when you have billboards up everyone in the world who's like oh my ex-husband who's a hispanic dodger fan <laughs> like calling and in tips is a
0: jackass and i hate him so i'm going to turn right
1: him. exactly exactly but a there was another group of Giants fans at the game that night, and it turned out that, that Brian and his friends never had any interaction with... Uh, Sanchez and Norwood during the game that that was kind of rumor that they were going at it in the stands. That was not true at all. But there was this other group of, of Giants fans who were there. They were being harassed by Norwood and Sanchez.
0: Oh, wow.
1: So much so that Sanchez was, remember I said he had his eight year old son with him. They were throwing peanuts at the back of these college students heads. And he was like, Hey, this, this is how you, you mess with fans that aren't Dodger fans. So teaching his child how to be this type of fan and, and going back to what you were saying about identifying at a certain age and how to act this, this picture came to my mind.
0: Yeah, that's brutal.
1: So at some point, one of these college kids actually like turned around and took a picture of him with their cell phone, you know, not on the down low, like he didn't see them do it, but they, they took a picture of him. Well, it, it, sort of towards the end of the game, you know, they're, they're harassing these, these college kids throughout. He even dumps a soda on one of their heads, like clearly looking for a fight as yeah. he drank more and more alcohol. And, and this information was gained by all the witnesses around. But as he drank and drank and drank, he was looking for somebody who wanted to fight with him. During the course of the investigation, essentially they had 700 clues and leads and the 10th clue to come in was this kid who said i think i have a text me- i think i have a photo of somebody that might be a suspect and had sent this photo in and that's eventually how they they found him because they were able to to trace th- how that seat was purchased Unbelievable. and, and then eventually, you know, led back to these guys. So Sanchez, they, they both took deals. Sanchez pled guilty to one count of mayhem, um, which mayhem is usually just disabling or disfiguring a part of the body of somebody else. And in this case, they were able to, obviously there was some disfigurement, but they were also able to use the severe brain damage because there is a, a subsection in the California Penal Code about mayhem of damaging an organ of somebody. So so that the, the real definition of mayhem talks about like, you know, cutting somebody's ear or tongue or eye or something like that. It wasn't that literal in this case. It was because of the organ that was damaged, which was his brain primarily.
0: Wow. That's educational for me because it's funny how mayhem has become sort of almost like a jovial term because of the insurance ads where we have a good looking actor that's kind of beaten up playing mayhem and, you know, kind of playing pranks and what but the literal criminal definition of it is disfigurement you know and damage like permanent damage that's not just like a a punch thrown it's like intent to cut to maim you know to alter which is psychopathic in its own sense
1: yeah definitely and there there was not enough apparently for you know any sort of in to show any sort of intent for murder or attempted murder. Um, Well, he lived, so definitely not murder, but the attempt. So, So that's the best they got with Sanchez. He was sentenced to 11 years in prison. Norwood actually pleaded guilty to one count of assault likely produced great bodily injury. They, he was, they described him as a co-principal. He actually wasn't, he didn't cause any damage to Brian, but he sort of like held his friends back from helping for a while. Mm -hmm. So they were able to charge him and he essentially got time served for how long he had been there. But, but as you can imagine, these were not, um, you know, angels prior to this incident. They were both, you know, had been in prison before and had records. Um, when they were sentenced, the judge told them, you are the biggest nightmare for people who attend public events and essentially said, like, you're the reason that I don't, you know, I fear taking my family to some of these types of events. And when Brian's father made his victim impact statement in court, he placed a Giants baseball cap on the podium as he spoke and the, um, these bad guys were just snarky and smirking like throughout their entire proceedings. Zero remorse.
0: Yeah, that's well, that's a big give right there. You know, the, the sort of mentoring of bullying behavior, the disinhibition through the alcohol, and then that level of, you know, look, if you're a badass, you're a badass, I guess, but not realizing that how you present in court and how that's going to play out for you. That just is also in, indicative of the level of intelligence and lack of insight.
1: Yeah, definitely. So there, there were some also. There were some, excuse me, federal charges that were filed on them for weapons violations because when they did search warrants at their home, they found a stockpile of weapons, I guess. But they've served their sentences. They're out now. Brian Stowe, he civilly sued the Dodgers, citing that they didn't staff the ballpark with ample security that night. Like I said, the Dodgers, as the defense, really did their part to paint him and his friends in a bad light as instigators and having a high alcohol content. But the jurors, they, they were deadlocked for a while, but they deliberated for nine days. And um, they eventually did find the Dodgers as an organization, negligent in Brian Stowe's beating. So it's really interesting. I I don't have the number or, you know, how much he was paid out, but I was looking at how they calculate pain and suffering. And they say it's two to three times the medical bills is sort of the rule of thumb. It's just one of those legal things that's kind of weird.
0: Right, and then what percentage of that goes to the attorneys too? Because that costs yeah. a lot of that really costs a lot of money to mount that kind of
1: proceeding. Oh, definitely, definitely. So when Brian was at was an at an inpatient hospital at Good Samaritans Hospital um, in an acute rehab center, he teamed up with a speech language pathologist, and she said, "Hey." You're getting better at this. I want to actually take you out to some outings to go talk to kids in after school programs. You know, you were a paramedic, so he would go and he would use his new cognitive and linguistic and mobility skills, and he would teach kids about first responders and what's an emergency, when do you call nine one one, and during his little presentations he would get the question what happened to you because there's you know it, it's very clear to a child or to anyone that there's lots of of damage and the disability in his speech and and
0: children also just have no Inhibition about asking questions like
1: that. No, no, not at all. Um, And so he and his speech therapist came up with the answer of him telling them, I got hurt by adult bullies. That has now turned into a foundation that he goes and does speaking engagements to bring awareness and prevention to situations in which bullying behavior ends up continuing into adulthood. So everybody, please check out the Brian Stowe Foundation. And Dr. Scott and I are going to make a little donation on behalf of the podcast because it's just wonderful work that they're doing. And it's so lovely to see that this is something which he is still giving back to his community.
0: Yeah, out of this horrible, horrible tragedy that something like this is able to to emerge and manifest is pretty amazing. I mean, it's just impressive. I mean, I think it's hard to imagine, you know, even for us as mental health professionals, and we see some of the worst of, you know, some of the worst wreckage in society. And, but I still go, I mean, I understand about resiliency. I understand about recovery. And then I, But I sometimes will look at the, the unbelievable strength and bravery of some of my clients and go, oh my God, what would I do if I was in that position?
1: Absolutely. You know, so to
0: be able to come through it is just so inspiring.
1: Yes, yes, for sure. Very sad story and just a a really dark part of LA Dodgers history.
0: Right. And and you know, but and unfortunately, Shiloh, it's it's not an isolated incident at all. You know, um there are I, I thought that I'd only you know, if I did the the research, I would find a few examples and you just get worldwide there are just Hundreds of examples. Um, so I'm just going to skim over a couple of things that I wanted to touch on that are so similar. To the example you gave, Brian Powers in April 2009 was at a game between the Angels and the Oakland A's. With the end of the game, after the Angels had defeated the A's, a fight broke out between two men near a stairwell in the stadium's right, here, right field pavilion. And during the scuffle, a third guy approached Brian Powers from behind. Just like you were saying, sucker punched him in the head, causing him to fall, hits his head on the concrete steps, And in spite of the medical attention, he was found to be brain dead the next day, which was awful. Now, I'll tell you this also. I reached out to my sports fans, friends. I did a very deep dive into the research. I could not, their two guys turned themselves in for that crime. However, could not find any more information. So I'm wondering if they got like a, a major plea deal. And were able to keep their names out. But, like, it was very odd to not be able to find, like, literally, when you Google this, you'll find local newspaper after local newspaper, and everything stops at 2009. They say that there's a search, there's a search, two people have turned themselves in, and then nothing. So, if Ooh. anybody has any information out there, I would love to know.
1: That's a mystery really in and know. of itself. Right. You know, and, and that, I mean... <laughs> Angel Stadium is always thought to be, like, the safe place to go, especially when Dodger Stadium was really bad. And it was around this time, 2009, no, it was, like, the 2011, 2010-2011 season, we had... Uh, season tickets but we did it at Angel Stadium I was pregnant that year I remember that and it was just like you don't have to worry about everything everything's nice and clean and people are friendly (laughs) and it I'll talk about it later but it's got much better at Dodger Stadium since Brian Stowe's incident
0: cool are they do you think they're going to build that tram the aerial skyway
1: I don't know. It's It'd be kind of cool. Now. The city has no money. Are you kidding me? Now that uh, COVID I'm, I'm and the protests, oh, come on.
0: this is the time to build it. Since all the streets are empty, like the zombie apocalypse.
1: Yeah, sure. <laughs> like do all anybody. the construction now, please. Right.
0: So the next thing, like in sort of tying that up with two examples or three examples of of sort of small group slash individual behaviors, I want to talk about. The phenomenon that we see more in the European and the South American market or cultures where we're not talking about necessarily individual acts of violence, but we're talking about how quickly sports events can turn into mass events and rioting. And it really is a phenomenon. And it has a lot to do with culture and going back also to what we were talking about, the that Idea of identification, but more so than we have here in the States, because we, you know, because America is such a large country and we go state by state, we forget that, you know, in Europe, many of the countries are not much larger than some of our states, really, but there are vastly different political schemas and cultural schemas. In conflict with each other. And so the tempers can rise very quickly, especially during periods of political unrest. And um, one of the most striking ones, as an example, is in 2014, Brazil's soccer team lost to Germany in the World Cup playoffs. And uh, Brazilian soccer fans were so incensed that they set a bus on fire. And then it's the same game. There was a young man who was a first-time young referee, Octavio da Silva, Carahande Jordan. He got into a fight with a soccer player on the pitch about a call he made. The referee pulled out a knife and stabbed the soccer player. What? In re- yeah. In response, fans rushed the field, piled onto the referee, and literally beheaded him
1: holy shit literally
0: cut his head off somehow somehow somebody came up with a sickle and they cut off his arms legs and head and the the head was placed on in the middle of the field on a stake
1: oh my god really guys
0: and even though this guy named Sousa, who was like the ringleader of the dismemberment he was detained his brother and another person that were allegedly involved uh, are still at large Ooh. So, I mean, that soccer can really get brutal. I, once again, kind of focusing on the fact that these are sort of riot slash mass events um, that happen. And I'm not saying it's just for soccer, other sports as well. But because soccer is such a worldwide respected and followed sport, we can go back to the 1964 qualifying match for the Tokyo Olympics the Peruvian Argentinian teams were up against each other in a major heat. And in the last two minutes of the game, there was an equalizing point that was made by the Peruvian player, Bertolette Anders, and it got dismissed by the referees. And the fans in the stadium who were extremely inebriated were not happy about that. They crushed the fence that separated the stands from the field. And when law enforcement came, they had to use tear gas which only made the fans more angry, and then so there's a split now where spectators are trying to actually leave and get away, and most of the exits were blocked and locked, and it resulted in three hundred and eighteen people being trampled to death.
1: Oh my God, well, there's so many people at soccer yeah. stadiums it's enormous, it's like a little city, and that's you know that's why there are terrorist incidents. At places like this, because they want to ensue, you know, this mass hysteria and then people get trampled to death. They try to funnel and all run out together and then you can like do a secondary attack and shoot people running out like there's just so many people. So it speaks to sort of the mob riot mentality and then also just that many people
0: right. And making it a perfect, um, a perfect, uh, setting for someone who's making that plan, much like the, the Vegas shooter at the concert, you know, just picking them off. Right. So once again, we found some more research, which is amazing. Um, because there was such an increase in the violence at soccer games between the sixties and the eighties in the UK that, um, Dr. Steve Frosdick and Dr. Peter Marsh, Uh, authored a book called Football Hooliganism. And they, going back to what I was talking about earlier, is that they explore the way that gangs were able to use the matches as environments where they could address their turf politics through violent acts and fights. And, you know, Frosdick kind of says that the hypothesis fits when we're looking at recurrent uh, incidents of violence, that regional Tensions will also help intensify their rivalries. Um, Hence, there's like a a huge division in Spain between Barcelona and Real Madrid. Even though those places are right on top of each other, there's an enormous, enormous uh, split between those two fan sets. In Italy, there's a historic split between the parts of Italy that are in the industrial north and the rural and agricultural areas of the south. And so when Juventus plays Napole, they're always on the lookout for major fights to start happening. Now, there's also a version of that in Scotland, because there's religious sectarianism between Protestants and Catholics that, to this day, still represents an enormous fault in their society. Like, there's just a huge dividing line. That's so
1: fascinating. I I mean, but you think it's— Sports are regional, and then you have this regional division or hatred that stems back hundreds of years, if not longer. I mean that it's it makes sense.
0: Yeah, it's just it was fascinating to me. So this is, and we even in America we had versions of this, like you know when it comes to. Fans like I and sort of the identification with the the fighters. I mean, if it's not it's sports, but going away from team sports into uh boxing. One of the the biggest things that happened during the Jim Crow era here in America was when Jack Johnson, who was a black boxer, beat James Jeffries, a white and completely undefeated heavyweight champion of the world in 1910, and it was at that time was called the fight of the century, and um. I think finally it went for 14 rounds, and Jeffries, the white fighter, finally threw in his towel, and race riots broke out across the entire U.S.
1: That's a really good example of that, you know, something happening here because of all that underlying tension and division.
0: Absolutely. So tying this back into the research and the the theories that Dr. Juan has, he talks about Sports playing these multiple roles in our culture, and it provides a sense of escape, which is not necessarily an unhealthy thing unless no. you're completely obsessed. Which is, if anybody's ever seen the movie Lone Star, there's a cameo by the actress. Oh God, what's her name? Frances. She does all the Coen Brothers movies. She was in oh, Fargo. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: Frances McDermott.
0: Yeah, McDermott? McDormand.
1: Yeah, McDormand. McDormand.
0: Okay, she's an amazing actress. Amazing, and she plays a bipolar woman who is obsessed with football and it's why her husband had to divorce her because it's literally the only thing that she can talk about she cannot have any kind of conversation except about football
1: well you know there's also uh um another version of fan but it's stan and that's an overly enthusiastic fan usually of a celebrity but it's blending stalker and fan together
0: i did not know that
1: yeah so, where did that come from? Um, so it actually it. Do you remember in the early two thousands, the Eminem song called "Stan," where like he's rapping, but then the, the fan is writing him a letter in between,
0: Oh, and right. is really
1: obsessed with him.
0: And doesn't Eminem play both roles? Does he play the, yeah. uh, the stalker too? Oh, I yeah. remember it then. Okay,
1: essentially. So from from back then, the guy's name was Stan, but it's stalker and fan put together, and it's also a verb. Like um, you're gonna stand like our, somebody. Yeah, you're going to stand someone.
0: I'm going to stab somebody while I stam them. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to those roles, as well as adding you know the opportunity of you know emotional escape, there's also kind of tying back to the importance of working as a team. and working as a team, even if there is an aggressive aspect to it, is really vital for the development of society. And it's also incredibly vital for our own development and evolution of interpersonal relationship skills and intrapersonal skills as well. Like you, you become a better sort of arbiter of your own mastery and skills when you are able to work within a team, which is very interesting because it goes along with some of the things we've said in other episodes about being the opposite of a psychopath is that, you know, a, a psychopath cannot work as a team member. Because they don't have that part of empathy. Now, all of that being said, what's really interesting is that the RAND Corporation put out a research paper on... Oh, no, it wasn't RAND. It was somebody else. But I'm going to get the doctor's name. Because this is really fascinating and actually somewhat frightening. Because it talks about there's a really significant thing that happens in our brains when we're watching sports and when we're a real fan, what do you think just off the top of your head, what do you think goes up and what goes down?
1: Well, first of all, I love that you're talking neuroscience to me, um, but I'm guessing things like serotonin are going to go up. Those feel good type of emotions. Um, but also I would say cortisol's going up because you're stressed. You're sitting on the edge. You don't know what's going to happen.
0: Okay, that's great. That's absolutely right. Now, what's going down?
1: Um, I'm not sure. Tell me.
0: Okay, I'm going to quote Dr. Thomas, Dr. Townsend, Dr. Wang, Dr. Martin, Dr. Katz, and Dr. Deshbani, because this is such a freaking awesome research paper. Fans of football show diminished activation in brain regions involved in pain perception and empathy. Including oh, the yeah. anterior cingulate cortex, fusiform gyrus, insula, and temporal pole, when viewing violence in the context of football compared to more broadly violent images. So it's not only that they're having this response, but it's not in watching a violent action movie or a horror movie. It's in watching real sports, and they oh, did this. Heck yeah, yeah. They did imagine this, what
1: it is for hockey. Jesus. Well, that, where no, they literally kinda, fight.
0: Right, that's kind of...
1: Yeah, but I'm thinking, like, of the fan side. You're like, yeah, get him, knock his head off. Like, you know, you're wishing for, like, this bodily damage.
0: (laughs) Well, and that's something else that's brought up in the research, too, is that, you know, we haven't even really, and we're not going to have time to do it today, even though it's a whole other thing, about fan violence when it's your kid. You know, when we're talking about parents that are in community or intramural sports, you know, Mm -hmm. is it really appropriate to tell your six-year-old to kill him? get out there and kill them, get out there and kill them. You know, I mean, as a clinician, I'm a little concerned about that, that language, but you know, definitely. I'm sure there's a lot of debate out there. So I just thought that that was super fascinating about what lights up versus what shuts down Yeah, uh, within the brain. Um, And then Dr. Juan goes on to say that like uh, the, the two biggest common in, when it comes to fan violence, the two biggest factors are, the ingestion of alcohol and the level of identification with the team.
1: Gotcha. gotcha.
0: So, you know, that's why the Cleveland Indians used to have a 10 cent beer night, uh, and their stadium held at that time 20,000 people. And there were times where the teams would have to defend themselves with their bats because drunk fans that were angry or riotous would just jump over. And, and start, you know, rushing the field. Because, wow. of course, we know alcohol lowers inhibition and acts as a cue for aggression. And what's interesting is that individuals who are intoxicated are more likely to believe that the acts performed by others are intentional. Oh, yeah. Right? So we've got yeah. disinhibition and misperceiving
1: and right. misunderstanding. Right. So the guy bumps into you and you think he shoulder checked you on purpose to say you're a chump. And now you got to turn around and fight him rather than it's a crowded walkway at a crowded stadium,
0: right? Going back to your example about Stowe, sure. Stowe Stowe's comment was like, it's a game. What What's the big deal. Uh-huh. And Sanchez loses his shit over it. You know,
1: exactly, exactly. Well, and it's funny cause in, in these, um, these people that I was talking to today in in gaining some information about security at professional sports games, you know, I said, Hey, just in your anecdotal experience and opinion, what would you say is the number one factor to this? And they were like alcohol, like everyone said alcohol. And then I said, okay, so what else do you think is a contributor? And I had one person, he said, well, I think it's the Disneyland effect. And I was like, what do you mean by that?
0: I do not know that term. What is the Disneyland effect?
1: And I, and because when we we're having this conversation, I'm like, you don't hear about this at basketball games. And he goes, well, think about this, a baseball game. You can get a seat for $17 and a basketball game. And now football games are pretty darn expensive. And it's like Disneyland. They hike the price up. Then you're keeping what they say is the riffraff out, and I'm doing air quotes, but you're also investing and paying for a good time that you don't want to fuck up. So there's going to be an inhibition to like, well, I don't want to get thrown out of this game and be an asshole because I paid $200 for these basketball tickets. No, I
0: I completely understand that. And they were telling
1: me that like even where they see that there's the most rowdy fans and where most fans get ejected, it's definitely the cheap seats. So, you know, there's whatever, you know, I don't don't want to call it. I like it. The Disneyland effect is kind of interesting. Um, But then they also said there's this cultural piece that is linked to identity and criminal behavior and sort of this crossover with, especially in Los Angeles, which is who I was talking to people with about the crossover in the gang culture. And it's tied to identity of the city. And so when you have your criminals and and gang members who their identity is tied to Los Angeles or tied right. to Chicago, you know, that all of those symbols just becomes an extension of themselves.
0: And so, look, I know this is going to sound completely hippy-dippy, but to me, that is really tapping into an area of psychology, a modality, and a, a set of theories that I find really interesting. I don't necessarily use it in my clinical work unless it's really germane, but it's the idea that Jung talks about that we have these internalized archetypes. You know, these archetypes have so much power over our day-to-day existence on an unconscious level. And I think you're talking about sort of a connection to, you know, I am part of the city of angels. I'm part of this large entity unto itself. And within that, There's other symbols of these teams that almost substitute like warrior status for so many men that may feel disenfranchised in other areas of their life. And I'm not, it's not just men, it's women as well. But, you know, once again, it's that group identity that just takes over our lives. And I think we all have some version of it, you know, as well. Or like, you know, there are certainly people that, don't necessarily feel fed by that, but there's, you know, good and bad that comes of it. I think one of the most fascinating things in, in when we talk about identification is Dr. Juan really drills down into that. It's not just a team. It's my team. So the more that a fan identifies with that team is the more likely they're going to see the team as an extension of themselves. So that in itself potentially increases the possibility of violent behavior. So to me, now I'm taking my takeaway from this is that it's really dangerous because it taps into any hidden or latent aspects of narcissism. So an insult or a jab at my team, that's an insult to me. And it doesn't matter that it's not to me directly, but I'm already disinhibited because I'm so pulled into like sort of the the Bacchanalia, you know, like to use more, you know, sort of Greek or mythological images, sort of the the crazed followers of Bacchus that were so violent. It's like, you're just in that moment. This is me. How dare you speak against my team, which is me. And that really is, that's what narcissism is all about. That, that what we call a narcissistic extension. Yeah, you know, that's talk...
1: very much so. I, I, I don't think any of what you just said is hippy dippy at all. I think there's a lot to that from where you sort of started that and bringing us back to narcissistic extension it's it's not just my team it's my team it's not just my team it's me
0: right exactly you know there's something there's also just one an additional sort of thing that you were talking about when we were talking about what was rising in the neurological system the sort of the the cortisol and the adrenaline being released people that are disinhibited and excitement seeking you know that is only further enhanced by being part of a group And Dr. Gary Steinberg of University of Tennessee says our research implies that individuals and crowds will experience greater heights of emotion due to that shared experience of the event. However, the type of emotion they feel will largely depend on the nature of the event. So if people are co-attending to violence, they will feel angrier. If they are co-attending to kindness, they will feel more empathetic. So once again, Tying it back to the very beginning of this episode, it's the idea of that identification with the sports team, sports community is almost the same as the identification with your religious or spiritual community.
1: Absolutely. Yes. So having to say all of that... We are much more safe at sporting events these days. There are, if you think about it. How
0: often do we do this? Like we talk about all these terrible <laughs> things, but it's not going to happen to you. You're going to be fine.
1: Guess what? Uh, yeah. The. If, <laughs> if, let's look at the stats. It's very low. No, I mean, it, it is crazy to think like get an average baseball game and it, it here in Los Angeles, Dodger fans are we are actually pretty notorious for selling out most games. So you're thinking like 40,000 fans. You probably have a couple hundred security staff there. But now there are cameras everywhere, which is good in the moment. It's also good for uh, deterrent and for investigation later on. But literally every seat can have a camera on it if they wish it to, as well as every hallway, um, every part of a parking lot. But there's also this other layer of like fan responsibility involvement. So most sporting events you'll go to over and over again on the different Megatrons and digital signs, they'll put up a phone number that you can anonymously text and say, like, hey, this dude in section whatever seat, whatever is using a lot of profanity and they will have somebody go talk to him. Um, and usually there's, there's a warning then that can rise to the level of ejecting that person right after one warning's given. And you could possibly be banned from a stadium altogether, but it's, it's interesting how they do these different layers of security. Um, officials, like they will have uniformed officers. Um, oftentimes when you're coming in the gates, they'll have them very visual and very, you know, present. So there's like this visual presence where like, okay, better be on my best behavior as I'm walking in. Um, but then you see just the uniformed officers walking around and then they'll sort of move towards the exits and out into the parking lots at the end. Um, but then they also have law enforcement officers in sort of like dress down, maybe like khakis and a polo. And then you have some officers or security officers in like a nice dress shirt and a tie. And that'll be the person that'll go and talk to the the rowdy fan. So it's very professional. There's not a uniform to sort of like trigger that person to escalate them more. That's gonna be the guy that goes down and says, sir, we've been getting some complaints, blah, 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 next time you're going to get booted. And then in the parking lot, of course, there's a lot of layers as well. Good lighting, motor cops, cops in cars, undercover cops. They will put under the undercover cops in rival team gear just to see if people start messing with them.
0: That's amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So,
0: you know, another aspect of that, because I know some people get freaked out by the CCTV and closed circuit stuff and monitoring and i mean that's an interesting debate to have but the jumbotron and the security at sporting events saved a guy from a life prison sentence do you remember that
1: like my favorite documentary the long shot yeah i don't know for
0: for those of you who haven't watched it's the documentary is the long shot basically a guy is basically he is Absolutely go into prison for murder, even though he kept saying I was, you know, I was not there. I was not there. Where were you? I was at a game. He could not prove it until he said, hey, you know, they were filming an episode of a show called Curb Your Enthusiasm. So his defense team went through all the footage and they found proof that he was there at the game the entire time.
1: Sitting Saved at the Stadium with his family. Yep, it's an incredible documentary.
0: Can you um, imagine like, being, like not being able to prove, like you've got alibis, your, your wife and kids, your family, everybody's telling you and still.
1: Yeah, like crazy. someone gave him the tickets. So there was no like trail of him buying that. I don't want to ruin it for you. But like, what are the odds that they're going to be filming a TV show and that that footage is there somewhere. It just takes someone to look for it.
0: Yeah. It's um, crazy.
1: The, the rules about alcohol have definitely changed. They, most stadiums, um, especially baseball won't, won't sell alcohol past the seventh inning. They want people to sober up um, not only to curb violence, but also don't want to be responsible for drinking and driving incidents. And, and same with most football stadiums and all sports, all sorts of other sporting events and they they make it expensive to yeah. drink, that's for sure everything's expensive, but
0: everything is, it seems like, yeah. yeah, so I wanted to wrap up with something since we started off with a story about Alabama, and certainly, you know, sports culture is uh, goes across our our entire country, but it is more intense in the same way that pageants are a whole culture themselves. Oh, that's geez. what we should do. We should do an episode on pageants and crime that'll we'll do that anyway that's down the line
1: here's our series on the south and crimes
0: exactly it should just i think what was it southern fried crime we should talk to her about oh that's right she's got a podcast but my dear friend deb that i is a very successful actress and playwright here in los angeles um has also written an amazing book called when mommy loves bama and daddy loves auburn and if you're a football fan get it on amazon and give it as a gift because it's just hilarious and adorable and deb is a really good friend of both shiloh and i but she's also has because she's a huge alabama fan she really has a great insight into this and she's a wonderful writer so i asked her to give me sort of an overview quote that we could share here on the show so i'm gonna read what she said Southeastern Conference football allows state pride in places that don't get much respect from the rest of the country about much else. All people like to cheer for their tribe, but none more so than those who might feel that they have a little else to cheer about. Historically, gridiron football was invented on northeastern campuses as the elite prep schools. It wasn't until Bama's Rose Bowl against Washington in 1926 that anyone gave Southern teams any real consideration. And the South had still been trying to gain national respect since the Civil War. And it might be said it still is. Also, part of why the South is especially passionate about college football is that there are very few pro teams to get excited about. And the few pro teams that do exist are peopled with players from everywhere else we all want to feel proud of the people we identify as ours. Our kids grow up in the shadows of these huge stadiums and dream of attending college there and making their hometown proud. And the occasional transfer student, if exceptionally talented as well as devoted to the local culture, can be adopted very quickly.
1: Yeah, I bet. <laughs> if you're so, good enough, we'll take you in as ours. That's
0: what the blind side is all about. <laughs> so please check out deb's book on amazon when mommy loves bama and daddy loves auburn it's a great gift and football season is coming up who knows what that's going to look like yeah Um, but wow weird
1: weird times for sports that's for sure but um,
0: we hope everybody's taking care of themselves socially distancing physically distancing be careful we're not out of the woods yet not Um, at all please
1: wear your masks thank you for all of you that are we love you and we appreciate it very much lots of people appreciate it
0: and we are having a blast on Get Vocal
1: Yes. please come
0: join us on Get Vocal you guys this is I would never have dreamed of us having this opportunity to interact with people and other podcasters we're just having a blast and we're jumping as soon as we're done with our show we jump on somebody else's so in these times of quarantine, please come join us on Get Vocal and um, and interact with us. Jump in. Talk. We love our fans. We love yeah. our fans.
1: We're on there the Saturday following every episode drop, so it's easy to remember.
0: Our challenge coins are up in the website. You'll be able to purchase them soon. You can certainly look at them now, and um, we'll have more merch coming down the pipes pretty soon
1: cool thanks for this episode scott i'm so pleasantly surprised you put one together on sports (laughs) (laughs) i can't
0: believe it either i'm fascinated now
1: all right guys we'll see you next time on la not so confidential take care
0: bye folks